the moment that I whispered the first, I need help was like the moment that my eyes were open to what help can bring and how help can change my life. And asking for help is really, I think, like working out. It's like the more you do it, the easier it gets. But I think for a lot of people, that initial, it's like pride's utter chokehold of like, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this until I really don't is scary. Okay, so here's my question. When was the last time you answered the question, how are you? Honestly, whether small talk is a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing, uh, it's kind of a matter of passionate debate these days. But the bigger issue, especially this question, brings it up. When it's time to get real, what do we do? Do we bail or do we actually open up to it? both with other people and also with ourselves. And what are we losing? What parts of ourselves, our relationships, our lives are we forsaking when we hide behind the facade of social propriety? There comes this time when it's crucial to move beyond the surface level if we want to invite deeper and more fulfilled connections into our lives and find community that will support and unlift us. So today, I'm joined by Jenna Kutcher to talk about This idea and so much more, the notion of diving deeper below the surface in all parts of life to spark meaningful connections and ultimately a more authentic and rich life. Jenna is a born and raised Minnesotan, wife, mom, wildly successful educational entrepreneur and aims for two things daily that I can totally respect, helping others wake up to life and staying in comfy pants. After leaving a mainstream yet largely life-sucking career that was a complete misfit for her, she found her way into art and then photography and eventually creative entrepreneurship. And she began to realize that life is just so much bigger than she imagined and success was not what she'd always been told. And as is her bend, the minute she learned something, she loves to share. So she founded and hosts the now top-rated Gold Digger podcast, where Jenna's helped thousands really redefine and reimagine success and chase dreams through her decade-long work as a leading online educator. Her first book, How Are You Really Living Your Truth One Answer at a Time, is a deeply open guidebook to being alive that's chock full of both provocative invitations to rethink life as well as detailed guidance to lead you forward in a way that moves you closer to your heartbeat, your people, and the good life that awaits you. There are too many fascinating nuggets that touch on so many elements of living a good life throughout this conversation. We kind of, we kept bouncing into different topics and ideas and we followed the threads as we often do. And there were just sort of these light bulb moments all over, like the importance of asking for help, how to navigate change, not just in life, but in business while remaining grounded. And the difference in asking that age-old question with a simple tweak, how are you really, could make in all of our relationships. So if you're in a mission to own your life rather than the other way around and feel more alive, good things are in store in this chat with Jenna. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. You open your book. Or pretty close to the opening by talking about how much small talk drains you. And in fact, that's kind of like the source of the name of the book, the title of the book. How are you really? Can we just get past all that stuff? And it was interesting because I had a different reaction to that. So I happen to agree. Yeah. Don't love that. I'm also not good at it. I'm an introvert. So maybe that's part of the reason why. But I had this other reaction, which surprised me, which is that I was wondering if that was a cultural thing, if small talk was actually a distinctly US thing, because I have friends who have grown up in different countries, especially countries where they've lived in conflict for their entire lives. And when I talk to those friends, and it's not just them, it's their families, it's their friends, culturally, they don't small talk. Yeah, It's almost like, and I was wondering if there's something about a lack of a sense of urgency that has sort of been a part of a lot of our experience of upbringing that sort of like lays the foundation and lets us know, oh, we have time to just kind of meander around for a while before we just get to it. I'm curious what you think of that. Oh, I love that. I've never thought about that, Jonathan. And I think what's fascinating to me is there are people that love small talk. My husband, Drew, is one of them. He could small talk with anyone about anything. And it's actually something I love about him because he can connect and find a point of connection with anyone, whether it's the barista or Bob at the gym. But for me, what I think happens a lot of times... and Really, if we look at it in a cultural perspective, I think a lot of times small talk is the basis of some of our relationships. So there are relationships in our life where it's like we know we're going to talk about sports and the weather and nothing of depth. But when we break that down, it's like there's insecurities there or there's uncommonalities or there's breaks in understanding that create these safe spaces in the small talk that don't allow us to like get to anything that truly matters. And for me, it's like so painful because it's almost like you're in a room with people, but you feel lonely because you feel like they don't know who you are. Yeah. It's a really interesting frame to bring to it. And it was interesting that you said 
because they don't know who you are rather than you don't know who they are. Yeah. We have such a deep need to be known. And I think we put that on the back shelf because we step into a room and we want other people to feel that way. And we sometimes discount the need in ourselves because it feels like selfish or too egocentric. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because we live in the Midwest. We're in small town, Minnesota. And I've always kind of felt like a black sheep in the work that I do because there isn't a vibrant entrepreneurial, specifically digital entrepreneurial community here. And I've always kind of felt like I'm on an island. Like I am just doing this work by myself. Nobody understands it. Nobody gets it. But I lived that way for a while until I shifted my perspective and I was like, I'm not giving people a chance to understand what I do. I'm not even giving them an invitation to explain what I do. And I think we do this a lot where we just assume, oh, you wouldn't even get it. So I'm not even going to get into it. But what if we shifted that and we were like, let me help you understand just so that you can be a piece of this part of my identity or who I am. And I think that's kind of that difference between like, how are you? And like, leaning in and like feeling safe to be like, how are you really? It's like, how can we lean into those invitations that allow people to, again, know us, but also invite them to feel fully known as well? You know, there's an assumption I feel like is buried in in what you just shared too, which is that they're not interested enough to actually engage in a conversation where I sort of like explain, like they give you the time to actually sit there and learn, oh, wow, like this is what this is and this is what you're doing. This is how it works. We're almost assuming that they're seeing us as not worthy of that amount of time and attention. So we just shut it down rather than ever testing that assumption. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because there have been times in my life where someone will ask like, how are you? And you think to yourself like, do they really care or do they really (laughs) want to know? And a lot of times it's like with our human interactions being so limited in this day and age, a lot of times, you know, your UPS driver does not want to hear how you are really doing while they're dropping off a package. But there is this responsibility for us to create these opportunities to have these conversations and to invite these conversations. And I think it's one of those things where it's almost like, and you and I have had conversations like this in real life, specifically in vans, in the back of vans with our family members, where it's like, I go and you go. And it's like the more vulnerable, it's like peeling back the layers of the onion. It's almost like I dare you to go forward and share what's really going on. And it's almost like you have to be willing to go first And in that going first, you risk them not being able or willing to try, but you also open yourself up for this way deeper potential. And I think oftentimes we just write that off without really trying. No, so agree with you. I feel like we think, oh, if we don't go there, like if we reveal enough of ourselves so that we know we'll quote fit in or belong, then everything's cool and we we get to surround ourselves with people. But it's not actually the capital W we that we're in relationship with. It's like the facade. It's the the illusion of what we think will be accepted that we present. And that's why we can be surrounded by all these people and still feel utterly alone. Yes. There's this line in my book that I love about loneliness because I really think, so there's a study that is 80% of those under the age of 18 and 40% of adults over 65 years of age report being lonely right now. And according to that study, it says loneliness is perceived social isolation, 
not objective social isolation. And I think it's so incredible because it's like the opposite of loneliness isn't just connection. The opposite of loneliness is being known. And it's that connection with people who truly know you. And so I think it's fascinating because we often think about how we are more connected now than ever. But it's this false sense of connection and it's this false sense of friendship, this digital world that tricks us that we are highly connected. But it's almost like when you walk into a room and you know that if you like exited stage left, no one would even know you were there or had been there. I feel like that's kind of how we're walking through life because it's like we could be surrounded by people, but if we aren't feeling like a whole person, it's not a true experience that results in connection. Yeah, so agree. You know, we've heard so many different ways people have phrased the fact that we are more connected than ever before. But I actually feel like it's not true. I feel like the avatars that we present to the world are more connected than ever before. But we as like the actual human beings and like our true selves aren't. Mm -hmm. You know, we think that because we've got, you know, these followings and these relationships and these people on our email list that, you know, like, okay, like we're really well connected. But no, it's just the, it's the image that we present and we continue to hide behind them. It was interesting that you mentioned that um, there was a line in your book that I literally highlighted where you said the opposite of loneliness is being known. I was like, yes, "Yes." so powerful. Have you ever stumbled upon Arthur Aaron's work? A lot of people are more familiar with it as the 36 questions. That was sort of like the subject of this modern love column a couple of years back in the New York Times. But it's fascinating work. He runs a research lab in Stony Brook and he's actually the husband of Elaine Aaron, who is the woman who's done all like the primary research on highly sensitive people. So they've both together done this incredible research, but he runs a lab which, which looks at human intimacy. And he came up with this set of 36 questions, which is what you were describing. It's couplets of nine, like three sets of nine or whatever it is. And each one of them is designed to take you from a sort of a superficial thing to a little bit more vulnerable, revealing a little bit more. And it's what you were describing is this process of progressive revelation and vulnerability and it's mutual and if we don't ever get there if we just stay at that like level one or two question then we have all these conversations but we never actually feel known it's amazing yeah you know what's interesting this is not sponsored or anything but drew and i have been doing this app together so my husband and i got this app and it's called paired p-a-i-r-e-d and basically what it is is that every single day there's a question for you as a couple And you cannot see your spouse's response until you yourself respond. So in order to unlock their response, and it covers everything from intimacy to relationships, to financials, to responsibilities, to family relationships. And it's been so cool because I think too, it's really easy to go through life with a partner, but kind of wake up one day and be like, I'm not the person I was 10 years ago and neither are you. And like, who are we? And it's like when you go through these massive life shifts or identity shifts, like we just became parents again to a second daughter. Like when you become an empty nester, it's so easy to kind of look at your partner and be like, okay, I love you, but like, who are you now? Or who are you becoming? And it's been really fun because just like those questions, I'm sure that a lot of the questions we answer daily are based off of some of those science, you know, behind intimacy. But I love it because it's easy to just get stuck even with the people you love the most at the how are you stage and to not really dive into that really and to not recognize that like 
we are growing and evolving and changing, and we only know what we know right now. And that's the beauty of life. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in your life, but there are so many people that I've watched where it's like they're growing into themselves, but they grow apart from their loved ones. And I think it really takes true diligence to grow together as a duo. Yeah, I completely agree. And sometimes also for two people to truly honor their own individual growth, especially if they come together pretty early in life yeah, and they have a lot of evolution and growth and like maturing and seasoning to do. I think there are times where even if you do the work, even if you're really intentional about it, for each of you to independently step into who you need to become, you may reach a point where you're not, you don't have the same synchronicity. You don't still mesh in the way that be. And I think sometimes that can be incredibly painful, but also important to sort of like own that this relationship may have run its course. Interestingly, I've also heard some pretty legendary um, relationship researchers share this particular marriage has ended, but that doesn't mean that you too, your relationship has ended. It means like the next type of marriage actually kicks in now if you're both invested in building that. So it's this really interesting evolutionary process. I love that. And I think it's fascinating too, because Drew and I, we met when we were 18, you know, we were 23 when we got married and it's like, oh my goodness, like he was selling cell phones. I was working a corporate job. You know, it's like our life has taken so many twists and turns and it is fascinating because it's like we are vastly different people today than we were. And I think, you know, there's a part of my book where I talk about like when you used to sign yearbooks, it would be like, please never change. And there's always this fear of like, if they change, will they still like me? If they change, yeah. will we still relate? If they change, well, we still have things in common. And it's like, if I could go back to my 18-year-old self and sign those yearbooks again, instead of saying, please don't change, I would say like, I can't wait to see who you become. And there's, you know, there's so much science behind like the resistance of change and how afraid people are. But I also believe that we have this really beautiful opportunity right now after what we've all collectively faced over the previous few years that we can face uncertainty and we can be resilient and adaptable and we will be stretched, we will grow and we will change, but that we shouldn't necessarily fear that. We should kind of lean into that and lean into like that inner calling that accompanies the uncertainty. Because a lot of times it's like we're looking for the roadmap, but like we haven't really checked if the destination is the one that we really want to go to. Yeah, so true. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Change is one thing that you actually weave a lot through. I mean, it's not just in your book. This has been a part of your conversation in a very public way. In so many different ways, career, relationships, life, like even the way that you and Drew both felt about parenting in the early days, it's like, oh, that's never going to happen. It's not for us. And then five years in, oh, maybe, maybe actually that's going to be different, which is a huge change. I'm so curious because you're somebody who seems to have found a way to hold yourself open to, to not just changing your mind, but changing literally everything that most people hold on to as bedrocks of security. Yes. Like I want to feel grounded in life. So I'm going to say yes to a career and stay with it until I get my gold pen and I, and I move on to the next phase. Yeah. Do you have a sense for what you feel has allowed you to let go of past constraints, past models of yourself, of your identity, of the world, of how things should be in a way that, that has let you sort of continue to say, well, maybe the future needs to be different. Mm, I love that. Yes. So there's this identity or there's this idea of identity foreclosure. I had a guest on my podcast, Dr. Maya Shanker, come on and she talked about this notion that a lot of times we hold on to these identities for too long because we're just so worried about like what the shift will do or what people will perceive or what they'll think of us. And she gave the example and it just made me laugh, but it's like exactly why we hold on to like jeans that no longer fit or like stay in degrees when we know we actually don't even want to work in that occupation because 
we would have wasted two years. So why not waste the other two, you know, to finish the degree? And it's interesting to me because I just feel like I've always followed the path of alignment for me in terms of what feels aligned. And when I am out of alignment, it's like I'm forcing things and the flow is not there. And that to me is the most uncomfortable place to be. And a lot of times I think identity comes in the form of like cultural constructs of like, this is your title, you know, this is your leading role, this is what you do in your work, this is who you are at your home. And I've recognized that like every day I clothe myself in a different identity, like every day I am becoming. And for me, I think becoming a mom after saying like, I'm never, I don't ever want to. And now all of a sudden I do, and now I can't, and now I will. And all of these things, it was honestly just this like revelation of like, I am this multi-passionate person who has the ability to change her mind, but also who has the ability to just do the things that she wants to do. And when I left corporate America as a Midwesterner and walking away from a salary and a 401k and all of that, like that is terrifying. Like my parents were like, what are you doing? I was 23 years old. I picked up a camera. I decided I was going to become a wedding photographer. I'd never taken an art class and they were rightfully so afraid of what I was about to do. But I recognize that like in sitting in a meeting with my boss and they're giving me this five-year plan and they didn't even ask me what I envisioned for my life in five years, that gold pen or that watch or the nameplate life was not one for me because I can buy those things myself and in my own terms. I don't need to wait or waste 10 years to get those. When I look at identity and shifting, it's up to us to define our identity. And I think for so long and for so many reasons, we cling to what others tell us our identity is instead of really coming home to like this idea of like, I am an ever-evolving, always-learning student in life school, and my identity is what I clothe myself in, not what society tells me it should be. But it's one thing to say that, and you've stepped into that. You've demonstrated it. You've sort of like lived your life and, and sometimes very publicly made these really big shifts. And you've also sometimes very publicly taken a lot of heat for that. Yeah. So I wonder whether one of the things that really stops people from, even though they feel like, okay, I'm done with this chapter... And I kind of, and maybe I don't see exactly what the next chapter is, but I have enough of a hint that I could take the first step or two into it. I often wonder that the most powerful things that stops people from doing that is fear of being socially outcast, you know, fear of violating the norms of a group or a community to which they belong and they want to continue to belong. And they're afraid that if they like take this step to the left or right, that's going to get them cast out. And that is absolutely terrifying for us. Don't you think, Jonathan, that like when I think about stepping into a new identity or trying something new, I am more fearful of the judgment of the people that know me than I am of the strangers on the internet. Like when I talk to people who are like, I want to start the business or I want to pursue this hobby or I want to, but what will my college roommate think of me? Or what will my neighbor think when they see that? Or what will my mom say or my sister say or whatever that is? And it's fascinating to me because we worry about people that are in our lives that are supposed to love and support and encourage our growth. But those are usually the people's judgments that hold us back more than strangers on the internet. Is that true for you? Because it's true for me. <laughs> I don't have a lot of sort of like throughput from people who are not like in my immediate circle. I, years ago, I like when I sat down with um, Brene Brown and she said this many times over many different ways, she's like, 
I have no input for anyone who's not also in the arena, you know, like getting banged up and bloodied like along the way. She's like, if you're not in there along with me, I could care less what you say. Yes. I love that. And her Netflix, when she like, you and you watch her deliver that, it is like so powerful. And I think a lot of times we often give the people with opinions, like they're in the cheap seats watching and commenting. And like, we're the ones like out for the battle. And I think that's such a powerful reminder. And one of the most interesting things that I've found over time, I was even just doing a training with a few hundred women last night. And I asked them, I said, how many of you are afraid of failure? And of course, a lot of hands go up. And I said, well, how many of you are afraid of success? And just about the same amount of hands went up. And I think what's fascinating is that we're not necessarily afraid of failure. We're afraid of failing publicly. But when it comes to success, I think sometimes that can be even scarier for people because you're putting yourself in a position to be judged, to be critiqued, to get that feedback. And I think for a lot of people, that's honestly more terrifying than trying something and failing and giving up. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also a bit of like, you know, the devil you know syndrome. You may not be happy right now. You may not be fulfilled right now. You may be dealing even with mental illness, but you know that experience. Like you kind of know you've lived it enough to feel like you get it. And the thought of doing something profoundly different you don't know that. You don't know the success, but you also, so many people project, well, what other suffering that I don't yet know how to manage a different experience, even a different level of success. It's so interesting the way that our minds work. Isn't it? I know. I was just talking to someone and we were talking about, they were asking about how do you handle criticism or something like that? And I said, you know, our brains are literally wired to remember the negative things. Like it was how the caveman survived, like run away from the lion, like that kind of thing. But now in this day and age, it's like, I could ask anyone that has a public platform, like tell me word for word verbatim, a mean comment that has stuck with you. And they could. And then I could say, tell me a great testimonial. And they couldn't. And it's fascinating to me because When we are wired that way, it takes a lot of work to help make sure that your narrative is strong and that your self-talk can really help to bridge that gap between any feedback or criticism that you're bringing in so that what you believe about yourself is more important than what anyone believes or says about you. You know, it's really wild. As you were just saying that, I had this momentary flashback and then a flash forward. And literally an hour ago, Someone from my team shared some, like a couple of beautiful responses to an email that I sent out yesterday. I can't remember the details of those emails, but I can remember in the blink of an eye, a really harsh comment from when I was a blogger in 2008 in the very early days of being exposed. Stop. Our brains are so bizarrely wired towards negativity that, and it's not just that we feel it, like it gets baked into our memory. So it's like we build up this really hyper-detailed, visual, vivid library of everything negative, all the times that we've stepped out, taken a risk, been vulnerable, and then had negative response to it. And we create this really kind of like vague response to all the good. And it's so much easier to recall the details of the negative. So that becomes like the dominant source of our archives. I'm fascinated by the way that our brains sort of like catalog things that way. I know. I wish we could rewire them though. That would be great. I know. <laughs> I think I think we can. You shared this really interesting line. The way we're living is not sustainable for a human soul. Yeah. 
it's really fascinating to me. I feel like we're living in such a polarizing time. Whatever we're looking at is there's two sides. It feels like when it's forcing us to feel like we need to choose. And what I mean by this is like right now, specifically, I think in the entrepreneurial space, it's almost like there are two versions of people who are in pursuit of bigger dreams. There are the hustlers and then there are the manifestors. There are the, you know, wake up earliers and there are the like, say it and it'll come into your life. And I believe that our souls aren't meant to always put themselves in a box, like choose one or the other. I think there are a lot of instances in our life where there can be the and or the both. And one thing that I think is fascinating about where I approach things from is it's almost like where the woo meets the work, where we have these visualizations, these dreams, these scenes for our life, but where our actions and our calendars and the way that we show up really shows that we're working in the direction of our dreams. And the pace that we have been running at and this disbelief in our ability to gain momentum, this fear that if we pause, we're going to lose momentum is keeping us just going on a hamster wheel. And our souls are not meant to do that. Like, I feel like our culture is telling us like we have to earn our right to rest, but like rest is a birthright and rest is something that we should be claiming and we should be relishing in, and it should be baked into a part of our being. And yet, if you look at the data, it's like very few Americans take all of their vacation days, like days you are already paid to do, to take and rest. And I think that it's like our souls are calling out for like more peace. And it's up to us to figure out how can we welcome that into our lives? And more so, how can we train ourselves to make that something that we crave and something that we prioritize in our own lives? Yeah, so agree. Um, you share a funny story about like hating Shavasana in yoga class. And it's funny because as you know, I, in a very past life, I own a yoga studio and I taught yoga for seven years. And it was like this really aggressive, very physical, very intense 90 minute vinyasa class. And at the end of it, you know, like I'm always, I, I would think to myself as a teacher in the room, I'm like, I know how hard I've just asked you to, like, I've invited you to really explore yourself and push yourself and work physically and energetically and emotionally. And when we come down into the Shavasana, and for those who ha- who haven't ever done a yoga class, it's a final relaxation where you just kind of lie there and you just settle into your body and your breath and your mind. And I would always think to myself, I'm like, you have earned this. But it's interesting because A, no, you earned it by just being born. <laughs> Like you didn't have to just show up and work for 85 minutes to earn this five minutes of Shavasana. Yes. So it's like, even I, as like the teacher in the room had a bit of an off frame to it. And then of course, doing this in New York city, it was, you would see if there were 50 people in a class, we'd go down to Shavasana and 20 would immediately quietly gather the things and leave because they could not imagine just sitting there for five minutes with their eyes closed, feeling their body and their breath. We are so programmed to not allow space for that into our lives. It's kind of mind-boggling. It is. And I love that chapter because I was the same way. And it was so funny because I approached yoga from this place of performance. Like a lot of times, like I was a former gymnast, I'd be like, let me get my leg up a little higher. Let me catch that bind. Like I want to do all of these things. And And I remember the first time that someone said to me, like, Jenna, you're not supposed to like achieve yoga. You're supposed to practice it. And I think that is such a powerful change of reference because 
You're not supposed to arrive. You're not supposed to complete. You're supposed to practice. And we have lost the art of practice in our lives because we are so keen on showing the before and the after, like the you know starting line and the finish line. And, and we forget to show that middle, that practice, whatever that is, whether it's a relationship or a project or a career. And I feel like there's so much beauty in understanding the practice. And for me with yoga, it was just that. Like I felt like laying there for five minutes. One, I just couldn't be quiet with myself. But two, I could not come to terms that I was supposed to relish in what I had just done. It was like on to the next thing. And the beautiful thing is, is if you really think about it, like Shavasana in yoga, and if we'd apply it to life, that is what you are working so hard for. And there's a story in the book, and I love it. It's about a monk. And he visits New York City and the tour guide is like, hey, we can save ourselves 10 minutes if we take the subway. So they go into the depths of the bowels of the city and they go on the subway and they come up and the monk goes and sits on a park bench and the guy goes, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm enjoying the 10 minutes we just saved. And it really makes me think about how we are so obsessed with productivity and efficiency and doing more and being more. And we're doing more so that we can do more. But it's usually we're working harder so we can work harder instead of relishing in the time that we're saving or or the way that efficiency is giving us back our lives. We're just spending our lives on creating more efficiency. It's really wild. Yeah. I mean, I, we are so outcome focused. And again, I think that's a cultural thing because there are Eastern cultures, in my experience, tend to be less so. They tend to be more process and practice, or if not focused, at least present in the value of the along the way in the way that I feel like a lot of Western culture isn't. We are so driven by, like you said, productivity. And then what is the productivity leading to? Like, how do I check the box of the outcome? Because that is how I define my value, my worth in society, my worth in relationships, my worth to myself as a human being is how many boxes I've checked, you know, by the end of the day. I mean, if you look at life broadly as a practice with the goal simply to show up and do it, imagine how that would just change the way that you experience each day. I think you'd probably accomplish similar things at the end of the day. The way you'd feel on the way would be so profoundly different. I think it's interesting. And one thing you know, you've know, you referenced that I've pivoted and changed identities a lot. And I think part of that is the idea that I look at everything as an experiment instead of a success or a failure. Because even that reframe, an experiment simply yields a result. The result guides your path forward. And we are so quick to label things, successes and failures, that we almost get afraid to even try because we're like, it could be a failure, but it could be a smashing success. And I love just looking at ideas and creative endeavors or curiosities and being like, huh, this could be a cool experiment. And all it's going to do is just give me a result. And I can do whatever I want with that result at the end of the day. And that can be a guiding light that allows you to play a little bit more and get creative. But here's the thing. I don't even think we give ourselves time for creativity anymore. If we can't lay down for five minutes after a great yoga session, we sure as heck aren't spending 10 minutes a day asking ourselves, what do I want to do creatively today? And I think that's part of the human experience that I want to bring back. Yeah, I love that. The notion of what can I do creatively today also... It's a hard thing for a lot of people to ask that because I wonder if so many of us have become 
disconnected with whatever signals our body, our intuition, our emotion, our circumstance would give us that would even allow us to begin to answer that question. Like we don't want to ask the question because we're we're concerned that we won't even be capable of knowing where to start to answer it. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like that, like it creates this preemptive shame that we don't want to feel. So we don't even ask a question. Have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. One, this is a perfect example. Drew and I were in the car one day. We were talking about a mutual friend and we were just getting to know this person. And we were like, I wonder if she has any hobbies, you know, beyond work and motherhood. And then I turned to Drew and I go, and what are our hobbies? And it was kind of this like wake up call of like, you know, when we were in the thick of COVID, it's not like you were having conversations with people about like, what do you like to do outside of work? And it's so easy specifically to, you know, if you're a parent and you're working and you're managing relationships and like, I mean, everyone, we're all so busy and we were laughing at each other because I was like, so what are our hobbies? And it was a really big challenge for us to really think about like, how can we play more? And for us having young children, it has been the best reminder to get on the floor, take out the Play-Doh, you know, create something that you're going to just shove back in the canister at the end of it. And so it's not about the output. It's about like the art of playing and, you know, watching a young child and how creative they can be and how their mind works. It really inspires me as an adult to be like, when did I lose that? When did I lose that you know, ability to sing and dance like I'm on stage while I'm really just at the dining room table. When did I lose that joy of, you know, having an imaginary friend or pretending that this animal could talk? When did I lose that desire to, you know, put paint on an easel? And a lot of times it's like when productivity comes into our lives or when efficiency becomes a focus, play feels counterintuitive to the nature of how we are measuring our success of each day. It's funny because it's like you could tell people all day, like, go out and play more, but it's like, and where am I going to fit that in? And what is that going to do? But really, when I look at all of the different ways I've shifted or pivoted or had new ideas or felt creative again, it's all happened in the space where I've claimed back time as my currency and really welcomed in white space and margin. And I think that's what's really lacking these days. It's so it's interesting that you bring up playing the role of a parent as sort of like this inciting incident for you to look back at how can I bring playing to my day because you have this, you know, now two living, breathing examples of just like that mindset, that hyper presence that let me play all day, every day. You know, the truth is, I think a lot of people would literally point to that same experience as being the thing that actually becomes so overwhelming, so consuming, adds so much complexity to their lives that that is the moment when a lot of the notion of freedom and play leaves their life. And in fact, if you look at the data, you're not supposed to own this as a parent, but the data actually shows broadly that the first 17, 18 years of being a parent is on the whole across like large numbers of people, a less happy window than the period before and the period after. And a lot of it is the frame in that, you know, like I've sort of, I've given up a lot of my freedom, my play, my all of this in the name of, it's just things are a lot more complicated. My energy, my time, everything is being demanded in a way where I feel like I don't have any time to breathe. That part of myself that would love to relish and savor and play 
Like I can't figure out how and when to access it, even if I truly treasure it and want to do it. So it's an interesting frame that you're bringing to say, well, like, what if you actually flip that script? What if it's less about circumstance and more about story? Yes. Well, and it's interesting, Jonathan, that's so fascinating to me because for me, it's been the opposite because I like my dream and my like deepest goal is to like raise up the next generation to just be like incredible humans to like live better lives. And to me, it's like the things I want for my daughter, no screens and more creativity and more paintbrushes to the paper and chalk on the sidewalk. I have to be the person mirroring that for her. And that challenges me greatly because Drew and I have this joke where it's like, as adults these days, it's like we wake up and look at a tiny screen so that we can work on a bigger screen so that we can finish the night watching the big screen. And here we are as parents being like, no, 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 no screens for kids. And it's like, look at what they're watching us do. And so for me, it's been like this deep challenge where it's like, from anything about like body image with children to confidence with children to play with children, like all of these things, I'm like, I must be the mirror because our children mimic what they see, not what we tell them. Even when my daughter came along and she was, you know, this toddler and we were living up in the woods in Minnesota and we were in the pandemic, it was just the three of us. It was like, all right, we haven't ridden a pedal bike in 12 years, but here we go. And like, I'm going to go buy a pair of hiking boots and suddenly I'm going to enjoy the art of climbing up a mountain and climbing back down again. But it was fascinating because it was almost like I unlocked these pieces of me that maybe I had once as a child who would go in the woods and build a dam with her brother or make the tree fort or things like that. And so it's kind of this mix of like, how do we become mirrors of what we hope for that next generation, regardless of if we're parents or not? I feel like we are all a role guiding the next generation forward, but also how do we create this blend where it becomes this experience that is shared with other people? Because have you ever been on a trip or something and you're by yourself and you're in this magnificent place, but it just doesn't hit the same as it does if you're sharing it with someone else? Yeah, of course. Of course. It's sort of like you're turning to like, who can I tell? Yeah. (laughs) Like who's going to understand the depth of this? No, I totally get that. As you're describing that, it's bringing me to, um, so I snowboard and, and my daughter snowboards. And a couple of years back, we hit a point where we've been snowboarding together for, I don't know, a dozen years, 15 years at this point. And we're each other's, you know, like we're our ride or dies. We're on the mountain together, like from you know, the morning until the last lift together. And there have been these moments where we catch the last lift up. We're at the top of the mountain. A lot of people have gone down already. It's white peaks, you know, like all around it, you know, like 14, 13,000 feet. The sun is casting sideways across the slopes. And it's just like me and her, Mm -hmm. you know, side by side, carving these almost simultaneous arcs in the snow on snowboards. It is the most magical thing to be able to do that with my child. But also it's something that I love. And the truth is, but for the fact that we've been doing it together for so many years, I probably wouldn't do it. Or I I would do it far less often, this thing that I love that fills me. And it's the fact that I can do it with her and we can share it together. And also the fact that she has developed such a love of it that is a reminder to me of this thing that I can do where I get to play and be free as well. It's a real blessing to be able to find that. If you're not a parent, there are other ways to access this with, through the vehicle of others that you love. 
you know, and sharing in the experience of accessing a, a flow state, a play state. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And I think life is meant to be enjoyed with people. And I don't know about you, but we're both introverted. And it's like our ability to people has significantly decreased because of circumstances that we've all walked through collectively. And so I have had to challenge myself to really step back into this mentality of like, it takes a village to you know, bring people in around my children, to bring people in around my business, to bring people in around my book and my dreams and all of these things. And and it's really easy for us to get back into those places of white knuckling and not asking for help or not inviting people into our lives. And my challenge would be to really step outside and, and, you know, ask someone, how are you really? But also to be able to say three important words at times in your life, which is, I need help. Whether it's, I need help learning how to play again, or I need help exploring this new idea, or I simply just, I need help. That's a three-word complete sentence um, that I want for everyone to be able to drop in. And I think we're granted this invitation of like, how are we going to move forward? But for a lot of us, it's a challenge to invite people into our lives, into these spaces so that we can have memories that are so powerful, the kind that you want to remember, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you have any sense that over the last two years, really, that the level of suffering, the level of struggle, the level of pain has become so pervasive and so normalized that people are maybe finding it easier to step up and say, I need help because it's been so normalized, just sort of like society wide? Or is that just sort of like a a hope that I have? I think that it is getting easier for people to admit when they're seeking help, but I don't know if it's as easy to still do that initial, I need help. I don't know. But one thing that I think is really interesting that I think is beautiful that came out of the pandemic is, you know, I would catch myself on Zoom calls with friends who I hadn't seen in years, but it was like, oh yeah, we can still connect. I started a book club with a family that I grew up with. And so it's like all of us girls that join once a month and we've kept it going. And we've been challenged in different ways to create those connections, whether in real life or whether digitally. But when it comes to help, sometimes for me, I often think of my own story of like trying to do all the things and it really was just me white knuckling everything. And the moment that I whispered the first, I need help, was like the moment that my eyes were open to what help can bring and how help can change my life. And asking for help is really, I think, like working out. It's like the more you do it, the easier it gets. But I think for a lot of people, that initial, it's like pride's utter chokehold of like, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this until I really don't is scary. But I do hope that in all the conversations and in you know public people sharing about their own journeys and in people normalizing things like therapy and stuff, it's making people feel like it is more safe to talk about those things and to invite them into their lives. That is a beautiful hope and it's a hope that I hope is true. But it is, it's fascinating. And one thing that I think is interesting on the flip side of this, and I'm curious what you think, Jonathan, is One thing that I think is hard is that with all this awareness that we all carry, because I think we are a very like aware culture that others have it worse than we do, a lot of times that can lead us to letting what's not good be fine in our lives because we become apologetic that our heart is different than someone else's heart is different than someone else's. And I catch myself even with some of my closest friends where, you know, if I'm going through a challenging week parenting, there's 18 caveats of, but I have healthy children and I'm so grateful to have support and I have all these you know, privileges and all these things. And yes, we know that and we're so aware of that, but it's okay for hard to just be hard too. And so it's like gratitude can move us forward, but gratitude can also keep us stuck sometimes because it keeps things that are fine in a place of being stuck when they could really be better. Do you agree? I think I do. The notion of like trying to compare our suffering with everyone else's. And if you come from a place of privilege, whether by birth, by circumstance, by work, whatever it may be, or some blend of all of those, and there are people in the world who clearly 
you can look at and say, it seems objectively that their pain is so much, their grief is so much, their, their loss there is so much greater than I, I should just be grateful for what I have. And in fact, I think the notion is saying, you know, like you can simultaneously be grateful and yearn for something different or more or evolved. Um, and at the same time, acknowledge the fact that, you know, like there's a lot that's, that's still good for you, but you're still suffering. You still have this pain. You, which brings up actually something that you wrote, your pain can expand your deep well of empathy. Your fear can heighten your desire for change. Your grief may prove to be a strength to open up the experiences that await you, making them richer. Pain, fear, and grief are not weaknesses. They're your companions for your transformation. We're only in danger of losing time when we simply wait for them to go away. And it kind of ties into what we're talking about, right? Because it's, Yes, we move beyond the, the, the notion of comparative suffering, but also you're planting the seeds here of, is there value? Like we are all going to suffer in our lives. We're all going to experience pain. We're all going to experience loss. And it doesn't diminish the fact that it's going to hurt. And is there a, not an alternative, but a yes and a complimentary story that we can tell about those seasons of our lives? There's a part that I love that's following that, what you just read, and it's talking about how we're not meant to move on from our grief or our pain. We're meant to learn how to move with it. And what I love about that is if you have ever experienced a trauma or a loss or something really hard, there's this piece of you that's like, I just want to go back to before. Like, you know, it's like there are so many chasms in our life where there's a very clear before and after. And when you have experienced something really hard in your life, whatever that hard thing was, there's this deep desire of like waiting for life to go back to the before. And it's this notion of like, we're supposed to move on, but I don't believe that's true. I think we're supposed to learn how to move with because loss and trauma change you and you should come out changed. And what's fascinating to me is if we think about instead of moving on, moving with, I imagine, like, I literally think of like a turtle picking up a shell and starting to just slowly start to move forward. And that shell is growing their strength and it's changing their home. And it's like sheltering them from knowing that like they can get through these really hard things and they're going to come out looking different and being different and feeling different. But sometimes that's the beauty of it. And for us, when we were trying to grow our family, after saying for years we were never going to, we experienced two losses over two years. And I had to cling to this idea that the season of waiting was just as important as what it is that we were waiting for. And a lot of times when we are in these like almost, or we're having these big breaks, or we're experiencing these like deep losses, we spend those seasons of grief feeling like they're wasted but really those seasons of waitings can be really powerful in how we are preparing to continue moving forward, how we are preparing to move on. And I love that because I want to move with life's experiences. Like I want them to mold me and shape me. I don't want to just pass through them and go back to who I was. I want to keep becoming and so I think that grief and loss has been, in my life, one of my greatest teachers, but it only teaches you if you allow yourself to be taught. Mm, and changed, right? Yes. Which means you're not just grieving the loss of whatever the circumstances that brought this feeling of grief to you, but we have to open ourselves to grieve the loss of who we were before this happened to us. So it's almost like you're grieving. You have to allow yourself to lose again 
the person that you were and then grieve that loss as well as whatever the thing that caused the initial pain was. Yeah. So you can understand why that would be really hard thing for people to say yes to. You know, again, it's that identity shift that I think is scary, right? Like, who will I be on the other side of this? And who am I becoming through this? When I think about our culture, and if we even circle back to like our souls were not built for the way that the world is, part of that is, is that I think we are so afraid to be quiet with ourselves because we'll have to face ourselves. And we're constantly distracted. We're constantly you know, being pulled in a million directions, the pings and the dings and the notifications are just keeping our minds going. And so much of what we're talking about isn't solved, but it can be managed when we get quiet with ourselves and do these check-ins. It's kind of like when you're in a car and it's like the check engine light keeps turning on and you just keep ignoring it and keep driving and hoping the car is going to keep going. But if you avoid it long enough, the car will break down and it will be expensive and it will take time and it will be costly in more ways. And it's like, we have just tuned out the check engine lights in our own lives. It's like when you talk to someone and they you know, have a bad breakup or they made a bad business decision or something was a struggle and you're like, were there any red lights? And they're like, oh yeah, but I did it anyways. It's like we've forgotten how to trust our own check engine lights and we've also forgot how to check in with ourselves to even see if they're illuminating. Yeah, and I wonder if so much of that is again because we're looking to the way that others tell us that we should feel and be. And rather than like like our own internal, you talk about intuition and emotion as being these signals for us. And we're constantly sort of like trying to appease the world around us and the expectations of how we show up. I mean, you've written about this over a period of years now and, and not just written, but like you visually expressed how this shows up in you, the way that you feel and see your your physical body and the way that it shows up in the world and your relation to that over time. You wrote this line that really stayed with me, which was, we live in a world that eats with its eyes first, that profits off reminding us our bodies don't measure up and we march right up to the line on a battlefield of cuts. So I share this story and I talk about how it was the first time I ever became aware of my body beyond just it being and helping me move through life. And it was when a boy pointed out my leg hair. And I remember I was eight years old and I went home to my parents and I was like, please let me shave my legs. Please, 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 please. And they were like, you are way too young. They knew that if I did it, I would pass that point of no return and no going back. And And I didn't listen to their wishes because I was so embarrassed. And I was like, I will wear pants for the rest of the school year so that I don't get teased. And it's fascinating because I pulled my audience multiple times on like, what age were you when you first became aware of your body beyond just being? And for so many people, it's like those young, young ages, six, seven, eight, nine. And it's like, oh my goodness. And that story, The Battlefield of Cuts, is is talking about how I, you know, shaved my legs anyways. I had no idea what I was doing, but all I knew was that I just didn't want that pain of being different or labeled. And the funny thing, Jonathan, is when I initially wrote a book manuscript, I did it without an agent and a deal and all these things. And I initially wrote a business book. And it was, again, kind of that identity piece of like, well, here's what I'm known for. So here's what people expect from me, but here's what I really want to write about. And Even when I was writing a business book, I wrote about body image in it because I don't think we talk enough about how what we believe about ourselves and how we feel in our bodies impacts how we show up in every single area of our lives, not just career, 
but relationally and communicating and like how we show up with confidence or lack of. And for me, it has been this really like intimate journey with myself and coming home to my body and seeing my body as not this separate thing from my heart and soul, but like I am a whole human with a body and a beating heart. And so this whole notion of like a battlefield of cuts is like we are all walking around with this belief about ourselves with these deep insecurities that we do our best to hide. And it's holding us back from like actually doing impactful work, but it's also just holding us back from showing up at all for our own lives. Mm, I'm sure that lands with me. It lands with, it's funny because I think a lot of people would think, well, there's a certain type of people that would, this would really affect. There's a certain gender, there's a certain age, there's a certain sexuality. And it's like, no, the truth is, it's just that nobody's really talking about it because there's so much shame wrapped around it. And yet, like, if you could actually step into some sort of experience of just not even acceptance, maybe acceptance is the first part, but actually like reveling in all, all of the different ways that you exist in your body, how much bandwidth, how much creative bandwidth, how much cognitive bandwidth, how much emotional bandwidth would that free up for you to just enjoy yourself, your life, like everything so much more. It's complicated though, but I think of the possibility on the other side of owning that, okay, so this is something I want to actually really, really explore and see if I can move through. Like, what would that free up on the other side of it? You know, what's wild is how many thoughts per day we give to ourselves and what's wrong with our bodies. And we often treat our bodies like the enemy when really it is the greatest teammate we have ever had in this thing called life. And it's like this shift of really seeing our bodies as like these things that allow us to move through our lives and do what we do. And for me, it's so interesting because, you know, the self-love movement exists and it's beautiful, but there are also a lot of complexities that I don't think are covered in it. And sometimes people point it out as this like point of arrival, like, oh, I've arrived and I love myself and all is well again. And I really think that self-love is a daily and sometimes an hourly choice. It's, it's every time you catch that reflection in the mirror, it's every time that you notice something about your body or the way it looks or the way it moves. And it's this reframing. And, and if we think back to how we were talking about like people's criticisms and we remember those comments, it takes a lot of rewiring and intentional narration of ourselves to really help ourselves look at things differently. Have you ever looked at a photo, Jonathan? I'm curious if men do this because I know as women, we do this. But have you ever looked at a photo of yourself from years ago and you can remember something you were insecure about when that photo was taken? Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) And then do you look at that photo now with the perspective that life has given you and think, if only he knew how great he looked or how strong he was or how vibrant he was, how would he have showed up different in that moment? Yeah. I don't know if I think the first part of that, but but I look at it with a lot more forgiveness. Like that was just really silly to feel that way or think that way. And it's like, it's funny because I, I think it brings up the phrase, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh, if I could just be in my 20s again. And I'm like, you know, I'm in my 50s and um, I'm actually, there are a lot of things I'm really happy about not having to grapple with that I've just made peace with at this point in my life. And nothing's perfect. And there are new things that I struggle with or I suffer with, but um, the perspective of, you know, like 30-ish years. And it circles back to what we were talking about earlier also, which is this notion of self-acceptance is not just a choice, it's a practice. 
because you're going to continue to change and your circumstances continue to change and the people around you and your inputs are going to continue to change. You know, so we have to say yes to developing a practice of self-awareness, of self-honesty, of, of savoring and knowing that we can again savor and still yearn. It's a thing that we build that muscle. And just like if you stop working out, your physical body atrophies, I think the psychological and emotional has the same effect. So the practice is with us for life. Like we can't make those choices unless there's something driving them. It's fascinating to me too, when it comes to bodies and health and all of that, our culture is so obsessed with the what and the how, and we never really get deep on the why. And like right now in my life, like I am running on the least amount of sleep thanks to two young children. However, I've never been more energized and more adamant about my health. And the reason why is like I went into this year being like, I want to be vibrant. Like I don't want to just feel vibrant. I want to like illuminate vibrance in the way that I show up in the world. And if I want to do that, I have to shift the way that I look at food as fuel and not punishment or rewards. And I need to shift the way that I look at moving my body. And, you know, it's fascinating to me because it's like we are so obsessed with like, oh, what are you doing to lose weight? Or how are you so strong? But we never really ask people their why. And I feel like until your why is strong enough, you won't follow through. You won't be able to really embody this idea of vibrance or this idea of energy. And again, it's like with a culture that eats with its eyes, we are so quick to judge health based off of what someone looks like. But health is so much more than that. And it's this journey again that it's like this recommitting over and over and over again until it just becomes a part of who you are. And like, I feel like I'm constantly on that journey. Um, But it's something that lately, when I see people in pursuit of their health, the first thing I ask them is, what is your why? Because to me, that is so much more fascinating than the what or the how. Yeah, no, so agree with that. I want to circle back to to something you, you shared because it's been a curiosity of mine. And we, I, I think we've actually talked about this not too long ago also when you were in the earlier parts of writing the book, which is, okay, so, so you're known for a bunch of different things, like publicly known, but probably more than anything else, it's sort of like this really intentional shift in, in work, in career, in sort of like moving through from the corporate world and into photography, then art, and then in being an educator. And being, being like by almost any definition successful at this along the way. And a lot of what you talk about, a lot of what you teach is built around that. So like you said, when it comes time for you to write the book, it would have been an obvious choice to write something about like the business journey or like, here are my 10 steps to building this kind of business. And you've got the social proof and you've got like, you made a really interesting choice not to do that. And you wrote a book that's largely about life, about philosophy, about the bigger things, about hard moments, about standing more fully in the essence of who you are. And I'm curious about that choice. Well, it's funny because I am an artist. In all the things I do, my best work comes when I allow myself to be creative. And so When I finally decided to write a book, I had the self-awareness to know I have to do this in a way that's non-traditional because I have to honor my creativity. So I wrote the book in silence without any of the traditional things because the moment a deadline or money gets attached to something, my creativity just dissipates. Like it's gone. 
And what was so interesting to me was at first I started writing a business book. There was things about branding and all of these facets of things that I love, but aren't like my soul. And what's fascinating on the journey of writing the book, because it's been over the last two years, is I've realized that while I love strategy and I love marketing and I love business, my business has just been the vehicle that has allowed me to live a good life. Like there are different ways to live a wonderful life that don't include entrepreneurship. For me, that was just a vehicle that got me to this place of really being at peace in my life and really reveling that being content does not mean you're complacent, that being content is the best gift you can give yourself to really be in each day of your life. And so it was interesting because by the time I turned in my first manuscript and got myself an agent, when the agent pulled together the proposal, she removed all of the business stuff and said, you know what, Jenna, I'm not an entrepreneur, but this is what I really needed. And it was just this beautiful evolution of like expansion. For me, I literally had to visualize as a photographer, widening the lens of what I had written to reach more people because I was reaching all these people that were in traditional nine to five jobs. And they were saying, this has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. This has everything to do with life. And I deeply enjoyed the process of expansion. For all of the people that I know that have written books, they were like, oh, I hated the editing or I hated this process. I loved every single step of it because it just felt more me every single time we took another pass at it. And so it was a really good reminder for me of like, you can expand and you can reach out and do something different and you don't have to lean on what has worked in the past. You can move towards what you are being called to. But yeah, it was quite the process and it was quite an intentional decision once I really invested in that idea and believed that that was where this was supposed to go. And going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where you were talking about sort of like modeling behavior for your kids to do something that becomes, quote, more me every time I take another pass at it, isn't that the aspiration? If we could live into that ourselves and then model that for those who might be watching our behavior to understand how they might step into their lives. You know, isn't that really what it's all about? Yeah. And you know, what's so funny too, Jonathan, is that I have enjoyed every part of this book process. And I think a lot of times people say it's so painful. And for a lot of people it is, and they're just waiting to get to the end result. And like the way that I want to move through life is to enjoy the journey of it. And it's wild because like, I loved it. Like I've loved every bit of it. And I think that that's part of the messaging is it's like a lot of times we've arrived at these destinations and they don't feel like we expected them to feel or we cross off these things that we thought would feel like success, but instead we're miserable or we're burnt out. And so for me, it was so important to enjoy the process and move through it. And I think that it's a reminder for people too, as you look down at like, what are you working towards? Like, is the path and the pursuit of it joyful? And how, if it's not, how can you lean into the things that add joy to the journey? Because we all know that the journey is 98% of what we're doing and the destination is that 2% that sometimes isn't quite where we wanted to arrive in the first place. And so, yeah, it's been amazing and I've genuinely loved every bit of it. I'm just so excited for it to be out into the world. I love that. And, and and I can see your face. Our, our listeners can't, but um, 
you're you're smiling from ear to ear, <laughs> like you're describing the process. So your body is is definitely backing up the words, um, and it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So, in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Peace in your everyday. Peace when you look at your calendar and see what you're about to do. Peace in your relationships. Peace in your life, and protecting that at all costs. And I think that in order to protect our peace, we have to understand what success is for us and define that definition of success, not off of what it looks like to others, but what it feels like in our own lives, because we're missing life. We're not awake to the life that we're living. We're not awake to the beauty of our day to day because we're not orchestrating it in a way that really speaks to what it is that we want out of it. So I will protect my peace at all costs. I will do things in a peaceful pursuit. And I will look at my life as this measure of this beautiful place of being content and peaceful in the day-to-day. Thank you. Thank you. This is such a joy because I have been a listener for a very long time. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, say that you'll also love the conversation we had with Amanda Palmer about being open, vulnerable, and real, and learning to ask for help. You'll find a link to Amanda's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.